Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. It's day three of our latest Closing the Gap series. This round, we're exploring disparities around the COVID-19 vaccine, both access and distribution. And as always, we're talking with people on the ground working to solve those issues. Stats tell us that Black and Latino Chicagoans contract and die from the virus at the highest rates. But they're not getting the vaccine at the highest rates. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said Monday that a, quote, unexpectedly low number of Black and Brown Chicagoans have taken the vaccine and that it was a, quote, alarmingly low percentage. One factor, distrust of the shot. So on today's Closing the Gap, we want to know what's being done to build trust around the vaccine in these hard-hit communities. Coming up, we'll hear from a local physician and researcher on social disparities. But first, WBEZ's own Maria Inez Zamudio. Her latest story is how promotoras de salud are fighting misinformation in Chicago's Latino communities. Hi, Maria. Hi, Sasha. Tell us about your latest reporting. What's a community health worker or promotora de salud? Yes. So promotores de salud are essentially a peer-to-peer health education model where a community leader receives training on a specific topic. In this case, for example, is COVID-19. And then they bring that information to their community in a peer-to-peer model where the information is going both ways, right? The person is able to ask questions and follow-ups and there is the trust from that community member. And there's no barriers between, you know, a medical health professional and the person receiving the information is is the information is actually a much more organic flow Mm -hmm. and it's been an effective model in dealing with chronic illnesses like diabetes for example um, some healthcare providers in chicago have hired promotoras de salud to talk to patients who have uncontrolled diabetes and share information about how to control that that diabetes. And I've heard from folks who administer these programs um, who tell me that doctors have seen a lot of progress when they see those patients back and they come back with better diabetes numbers. Well, Maria, Latinos have the highest infection rates in Chicago. That's a huge concern. Can you Help us understand why this community has been so disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Yes, Sasha, this community has been deeply impacted by the virus. And as you mentioned, Latinos have the highest rate of infection in Chicago. And many of the zip codes in the state of Illinois with the highest infection rates are among Latino zip codes. Uh, For example, Bellman Cragen in Chicago's north side has the second highest numbers of COVID-19 cases in the state uh, since the start of the pandemic. And recent data shows that Latinos are dying of COVID-19 at much younger age compared to other ethnic groups. So this is not surprising given the fact that a large percentage of this community um, works in as essential workers. They can't work from home. In fact, national figures tells us that about only 16% of Latinos are able to work from home. And things get worse because these workers, once they get infected, they come back to their homes and they typically live in multi-generational homes. Uh, So you see the spread of the virus um, just like continue. 
So give us the real here. Does the Latino community trust this vaccine? The Latino community is very diverse. So I, I want to talk about what I've seen both from my reporting and then also from the live event that we hosted at BEZ last week. Great. And that showed that there was a lot of distrust of whether this vaccine is actually safe. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration when we're looking at, at those facts, right? So I want to take a step back and, and highlight that in Chicago, about 23% of the population speaks Spanish. Uh, that's a large percentage of the population. And there's very few options for Spanish language media and reliable information. As a result, this population often turns to social media. And there's a lot of misinformation posted on those platforms. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that talk about the safety of the vaccine. Um, and this is why it's been really important for folks like Promotores de Salud to go out and provide reliable information to that community. We were doing reporting in Belmont Cragen and these promotores of salud were asking folks about whether they would be getting the vaccine. And, and this is what we encountered. ¿Usted siente con la confianza de recibir la vacuna de COVID? No. ¿Por qué? No. Margarita asks a woman from Colombia if she's going to get the vaccine. When she says no, Margarita calmly asks why. The woman doesn't trust the government and says this is like the flu vaccine and wonders how that could be safe. It's not safe, she says. The government is playing with people's lives. So we're hearing, Maria, a lack of trust for the government. What are some of these rumors? Yeah, there's a lot of rumors. You know, in the interest of time, I wanted to t take a close, closer look at some of them because I think it reflects the reality uh, that this community has lived over the last four years under um, the Trump administration and his policies around immigration. And also the racist things that he said about Mexicans and other immigrants. And so the rumor basically goes like this. President Donald Trump created the vaccine. His administration created the vaccine. President Trump wants to kill immigrants, so therefore the vaccine will kill undocumented immigrants. Mm. That rumor obviously is not true, but I think it speaks to the anxiety and the fear that is alive in this community. And, and, and this community has been feeling like that for years. Other rumors also include the fact that folks really think that, and this is also reflected in the clip that we heard, people believe that the government is actually injecting you with the virus. And they've seen from family members, because a lot of them have seen, um, they've been impacted by the virus. So they see how drastic and how bad this virus is. So in their minds, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, you're injecting me with a virus? Like, that? how can that be safe? Right. How can the government do that? And so these rumors really spread quickly on Facebook and WhatsApp. You mentioned before the need to to get the information out in Spanish. WBEZ, with support from the Pulitzer Center, has made some of our vaccine coverage available in Spanish. Uh, we also hosted a bilingual virtual event last week for the Latino community to be able to ask questions to public health officials. Can you tell us a bit more about those efforts, Maria? I know you were deeply involved. Tell us why that's important. 
Yeah, one of the things that we um, have been doing on our team is really looking at vaccine distribution and coverage uh, with the lens of disparities. Are the communities that were deeply impacted by the virus, are they getting access to the vaccine? So when we were looking at this, we noticed that there was, uh, again, the rumors are just outrageous and, you know, they spread so quickly that we felt the need to create a space where folks could come in and ask the questions. We collaborated uh, and we co-live stream this event with a number of organizations that cater to that very specific community. And once we had them there, we provided information in Spanish, right? The coverage in Spanish. So you, you can visit that at uh, wbez.org uh, slash Espanol, and, and a lot of that coverage is, is there. Uh, and we felt that we needed to do that because that information is really needed. And we also understand that it's important for the children of immigrants to have resources that they could then pass on to their parents, because it's not just getting the information to Spanish speakers, but it's also getting that information to their kids, because their kids are actually the ones that are trying to understand what's in the vaccine. They're trying to understand how to schedule the appointments to get their parents vaccinated. They're really doing the hard work. So we wanted to make things easier for them as well. That's Maria Inez Samudio, WBEZ immigration reporter. Maria, thank you so much for being with us. We'll tweet a link out to your story at WBEZ Reset. Thank you, Sasha. Turning now to our next voice, Dr. Monica Peake. She's a physician and researcher on social disparities from UChicago Medicine on this issue. I started out our conversation with her by asking if she was seeing this distrust from her patients. Yes, I have. And what is, I think, particularly concerning is that we're seeing this amongst hospital employees and healthcare workers. And because this has been the bulk of who's been vaccinated first in phase 1A. And so this is just a preview of what's to come. So if we have people that are working in hospital systems that are seeing COVID and its devastation, people who are exposed to COVID and are at higher risk and are still having, you know, significant hesitation about the vaccine and deferring getting vaccinated, then we know that we have a significant amount of work that lies ahead for the rest of the community. So what are they saying to you? Where Where is that coming from, from these hospital employees and patients? Well, we know that there is sort of a baseline level of mistrust within healthcare systems. We know that there are always concerns about vaccines and new technology, but there's an additional layer of mistrust that I've not seen before particularly related to this vaccine that is, frankly, uh, related to, to two things. One, the newness of the vaccine, the rapidity with which it came out, and the fact that it was developed under the Trump administration. And so those two things have made it particularly challenging for marginalized communities who have suffered disproportionately under the prior administration and have seen the kinds of authoritarian moves, who've seen the corruption and the things that the former president was willing to do uh, for personal gain with disregard to the public's health. That makes people concerned that perhaps this vaccine may not be something that is safe for the public. Now, 
as it turns out, it is safe for the public that there were firewalls that kept our former president from actually influencing the process, but that sometimes is a, a bit of a hard sell. What we have been leaning into is the fact that we know that this vaccine is our best chance for protecting loved ones and for fighting against this pandemic. I myself has been vaccinated. I've gotten both vaccines. And how did it go? I, my, great. I had just a little bit of soreness and then it went away. My mother got vaccinated yesterday and I cried, you know, and so everyone that I hold dear, everyone that I love, I have been actively, you know, advocating for them to get vaccinated. This is how we are going to end the pandemic. And particularly for people who are black and brown and have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic, we need to get behind this vaccine. This is our best tool to protect us. And so it's understandable, but unfortunate that our best chance for hope is one that a lot of people in the community are afraid of. Yeah. But we have to, you know, sort of walk through that fear and get to the other side. Well, I and want to tap into something you said. You you talked about your mother also getting the vaccine and it bringing you to tears. Mm-hmm. The hesitancy that you just talked about, that's got to just make your job that much more difficult. What goes through your head and maybe even your heart when you hear Mm -hmm. a Black or Latinx person express that they have reservations about this COVID-19 vaccine? You know, what goes through my head is the additional risk that they're unnecessarily taking. There's a pastor who said you can either get the vaccine or you can get COVID, <laughs> you know, right. really those are the binary choices that we're making because the community prevalence continues to increase. And so people are sort of hoping, placing their bets on the chances that they won't get COVID and they won't need it, but that's a risky gamble. And so we really need to be honest about the fact that, you know, we're gambling with our lives. And so when people are saying, I'm worried about the vaccine, I'm worried about them getting COVID. So how and are you how are you responding? I listen with an open heart and an open mind to everything that people are telling me. You know, I'm a black woman who was raised in the South. I understand with my own lived experience how people can be concerned about what is happening. But I also am a scientist and a physician and I've been watching the data. And so I don't discount people's concerns. I don't argue with them. I try to understand what they're telling me and walk through their journey with them. And so when people want to know, how did this happen so fast? You know, did we cut corners just to try and get reelected? No, we didn't. This happened so fast because we were already working on this family of viruses for a vaccine for years. And so when this strain of coronavirus, you know, came along, we're, the coronavirus is not new to us. That's why we call it the novel coronavirus. Then we were able to, you know, move ahead very quickly. If this had been a virus that we had never seen, we wouldn't have been able to have a vaccine with, you know, less than a year. This is something that the whole world leaned into. For the first time, we had, you know, more than 15 companies working at the same time on trying to get vaccines to market. This usually doesn't happen. We had scientists drop what they were doing and lean into coronavirus. That, you know, that kind of collaboration ordinarily doesn't happen.
And so this is a story of miracles, really. It's a story of us as a world putting our differences aside, putting our own preferences and priorities aside, and leaning into this pandemic and saying, we want to live, we are going to take care of each other, and we're going to get a vaccine in this world to save lives, you know, as fast as possible. And that's what happened. And so explaining that narrative, I think is important to get out into the world, particularly for people who are accustomed to struggling, who are accustomed to fighting against injustice, who are accustomed to working in community together. And so the idea that people came together against a common enemy and prevailed, you know, that is something that we can identify with and say, yes, I understand that. This is something that aligns with who I am as a person and who we are as a people. I can get behind that. I think these kinds of stories and narratives about how the vaccine was developed are important to help overcome the fears of this process and to help people want to embrace vaccines for their community. Now, you say you understand the distrust of Black Americans. It's got a long history in this country. Mm -hmm. Here's a moment from Dan Royals, assistant professor of history at Florida International University, in a recent Reset conversation, who explains it. So the Tuskegee syphilis trial was a 40-year study conducted at Tuskegee University in Alabama that was conducted by scientists and doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service. And what they wanted to do was to track the progression of untreated syphilis in the human body. And so they tracked the progression of untreated syphilis in a cohort of poor black men from the rural communities around Tuskegee. Henrietta Lacks was a tobacco farmer from Maryland. And in 1951, she knew that something was wrong in her body. Um, And she went to Johns Hopkins University Medical Center to be treated and they found a tumor on her cervix and took a sample from that tumor. And she passed away from the cancer. But her family didn't know that these cells had been, you know, taken from her body until decades after her death. I want people to take away that we should not pathologize what is essentially people's survival strategies. You know, these stories are are part of a community survival strategy that developed over generations. And we should approach that with an attitude of understanding and not condemnation or pathologization. Now, we'll tweet out that segment from at WBEZ Reset. Dr. Peek, what effect have those examples had on Black Americans' mindsets? And what about smaller indignities that they endure? Yes, all of this is part of our lived experience, our individual lived experience and our shared lived experience, where our lives are devalued within this country and that impacts the the daily decisions that we make, our calculated decisions that we make about, you know, what ultimately is going to be best and safest for us. So in order for communities to change that calculus, what that means is that the country is going to have to change how it treats black and brown people. You know, what we're doing is, you know, the short game 
of engaging trusted leaders, leveraging social and cultural capital, doing public health campaigns, and really trying to think about trusted people, spaces, and places so that we can meet people where they are and get vaccine utilization rates higher. Yeah. What about this? Go ahead. We have to think about the long game also and how we got here and what it's going to take to reverse those underlying feelings. You know, we're just coming out of 2020 and, and we don't even say 2020 at this point. We just had white supremacists try and overthrow our government. Yep, had a sure significant did. impact on how safe non-white people feel in this country. And so we have to acknowledge the state of racial politics in this country. Black people have to feel safe in this country and valued in this country in all ways in order to feel like what the government is offering is going to be safe for us, not just from, you know, back in the days of Tuskegee and back in the days of Henrietta Lacks, but today, you know, what are we doing to hold the insurrectionists accountable? You know, what are we doing to affirm that black lives matter? You know, what are we doing with our daily decisions that affect the life and well-being of African-Americans. And until we can be more proactive in affirming that Black lives matter, Mm -hmm. we will continue to have Black communities and Black people say, I am not sure that what the government is offering me is going to be good and safe for me. We will always be having a reactive response rather than a proactive response in public health emergencies. You've explored how racial and cultural barriers impact physician-patient relations, and you've done research on the South Side. What have you learned about how important that relationship is? It is critical. We are going to have to lean into those relationships right now. In addition to the trusted community leaders, in addition to, you know, working with community health workers who are frequently trusted bridges between healthcare systems and communities, in addition to using trusted community spaces like our libraries and our food depositories and other places where people feel physically safe, we're going to have to also lean into what we know is a trusted space, and that is the bond between patients and their physicians, particularly when physicians look like their patients. And so I will say that I have been worked to death (laughs) (laughs) in these past few weeks, you know, talking in community settings, talking to our employees, doing media, because I think it's really important that people see my brown face and say, Dr. Peak has had her vaccines. She has had her mother get her vaccines. She believes that this vaccine is good for us. And she believes that this is the best way to protect our community from this pandemic. Mm -hmm. What are your white colleagues saying about this issue on on building trust with black and brown patients? I'm curious if any have asked Mm -hmm. you personally for help with this. Yes, and they have asked to be allies. Many of them have volunteered and said, how can I help too? And that is critically important because there are not enough black and brown physicians 
to go around. We need all hands on deck. And what the studies have shown is that you don't have to be a black or brown physician to still have a meaningful impact on your patients because, you know, race concordance certainly matters. You know, it has a larger impact, but the continuity of the relationship, the trust that's been built over time in, in physician relationships still matters. And so every physician, regardless of race, has a role to play in promoting vaccinations amongst their patients of color. And so we have, you know, space at the table for everyone to make recommendations and to hear patients' lived experience with injustice. Everyone can listen. Everyone can, you know, advocate for vaccines. This is not only the work of marginalized physicians. It's the work of everyone. Well... Is there anything else on your mind, doctor, in regards to bolstering trust around the vaccine uh, or the vaccination in communities of color? I would say that we have to also think not just about the individual trust, because certainly an individual is not going to take the vaccine if they don't trust it. But we have to also think about the systems in which we're delivering the vaccine and think about how we can do so in a way that maximizes the trust. And so as we are making our plans for vaccine implementation, that we're thinking about, again, the people, the spaces, and the places where the vaccines are being delivered, how they're being delivered, the approaches in which they're being delivered that makes them ideally situated for people to want to get vaccinated? Are we greeting people, you know, with respect and open arms or, you know, virtually open arms? Or does it feel like very transactional, disrespectful experience that someone might have when they're going to get their driver's license renewed and and no shade given to the DMV workers? This has got to be something that we are very intentional about really reaching out with love in our heart, in our minds, leveraging the best of who we can be, our best and our brightest um, personnel, our safest and most beloved spaces, and all of our best allies in this effort so that when people make the decision to get a vaccine, once they feel like they have come to the other side and have you know, made that choice, that their experience is one that reaffirms that choice because this is a two-step process. They have to get right now, the vaccines that are on the market are, are two. And so we cannot, you know, fall down, you know, halfway through that someone gets one vaccine, has a horrible experience, and then doesn't come back for the second one. So we have to also think about what are the systems that are in place to deliver the vaccines in a way that encourages people to meet them where they are and to make sure that they come back. That's Dr. Monica Peak, Associate Professor of Medicine at UChicago Medicine. Dr. Peak, thank you so much for your great work and for taking the time to talk with us today. And that's today's Reset. Watch this feed because our series Closing the Gap continues throughout the week. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at how your access to the vaccine could be affected by where you live. For experts, one area of concern is reaching rural communities. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again tomorrow.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.